0: Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to take a few moments to look in your word, to dig through it, to to see the truths there. Uh, Lord, I just pray that, um, Lord, as we we look at your word, you give us open hearts, open minds, uh, that we might hear from you. Uh, Lord, what a beautiful passage Ephesians 1 is, and it's a very deep passage. And so I pray that you give us understanding so that we might better understand Uh, God, not only who you are, but but our Savior Christ, who he is, what he did, and uh, what the Apostle Paul uh, makes very clear in this passage for us about our Savior. And so, Lord, as we we look at this time, may it bring you glory and you honor, and may it edify those who are watching. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, So the passage tonight is, like I said, Ephesians 1. We're looking at verses 16 through uh, 23. We'll finish out chapter 1 tonight. Uh, there are some um, some pretty deep areas that I'd like to kind of flesh out for you. That's uh, more than just kind of a cursory reading of of the text. Uh, some of it requires um, a little the um, the Greek. You don't need to know any Greek words, and I'm not going to encourage you to to study the Greek. But um, there are some Greek passages and phrases that are, that are important because. Uh, they kind of expound on the text a little. They tell us a little more about the text than what a simple reading of the text uh, in the English language uh, would tell us. And, and so this usually probably your Bible transitions uh, verse 15 as a part of um, this passage. And so I'm going to start reading in 15, but I'm going to actually start the study in verse 16. And so verse 15, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians um, says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so the, the Apostle Paul is about to lead into an introduction of or a, a very deep explanation of who Christ is and uh, begins by saying to the Ephesians uh, and really by way of us through the, through the scriptures, um, that I don't cease to pray for you, that you can understand these things, that these things might be made known to you. And so in verse um, 16, Paul actually, when he, when he says, I never cease to remember you, or I never stop giving thanks for you. And in the English Standard Version, it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Uh, this is actually kind of a, um, uh, a two-word Greek phrase. Um, it, it's mignon, mignon. Uh, poiminos, Uh, and and so you don't need to know, you don't need to write, but but it literally means this, it it not only means that uh, making mention, so it refers to somebody making mention to someone else, uh, but it implies uh, that for those whom Paul's praying, that his intercession is actually named before God, which means this, that Paul literally names each of those he's writing to before the throne of God. Uh, so it's not the simple, oh, I pray for the Ephesians, or I pray for you, you Ephesians that you would understand. But literally, it's like Paul named every one of those in the church at Ephesus uh, is what he's saying here. And so when Paul writes this, uh, the interpretation of that from the church at Ephesus when they received this letter would be uh, that Paul names each of them before the throne of God. Uh, and so what, what a takeaway for us, if we're really going to pray for the church for families in our churches, uh, for for Christians, for unbelievers, um, then then it's more than just simply going before God and. In- kind of a general sense, but we need to go before God specifically and, and even begin to name names of those that we're praying for. And say, um, you know, today we, we, we say we're going to pray for everything. Uh, someone tells us this is going on. They ask us to pray for, for these things. And sometimes we're guilty of just kind of generally taking those things before God. Paul in, in verse 16 is saying to the Ephesians, I never stop praying for you by name. And so literally he's saying, I name each of you before the throne of God, uh, that you can understand, that you will understand, that the Holy Spirit of God will empower you to know uh, all these things about Christ that he's about to, to move into. Uh, verse 17, uh, Paul goes a little further and says, uh, I, I'm, so I never cease to pray for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation uh, in the knowledge of him. And so Paul's basically praying, and, and this is so important that Paul names them by name, that they might they might fully come to understand both God, uh, the Father, and Christ, their Savior. That, that they might receive a spirit of wisdom, that, that through the Holy Spirit of God, they could read the text, they could read scripture, they could um, as they worshipped with one another, that they might come to a fuller and um, uh, more deep understanding of who God is. And so desperately we need this today. We desperately need and we need to be praying this prayer for ourselves and not just uh, someone praying it for us. But we should be praying, God, would you give us a spirit of understanding that we might know you and know your ways, that we might better understand Christ and all there is. Um, uh, This really isn't considered one of the Christological passages in the New Testament as far as uh, uh, our four clear Christological passages, which those those passages like John 1, uh, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Philippians 2. In uh, all those passages, it tells us things about the character and the nature of Christ. Uh, Philippians 2 talks about having the mind of Christ and what the mind of Christ is empty in oneself. Uh, not counting quality with God, something to be grasped. So those four passages are typically taught as the four Christological passages. However, Colossians and Ephesians generally parallel one another. And this passage we're looking at tonight is the closest thing we'll get to a Christological passage, something that really tells us about the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from those four major ones. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm about to tell you some things about Christ that you're going to need the Holy Spirit of God to help you understand. And so Paul's praying that as he begins to explain Christ to them, um, that they would understand it. That's basically what, what verse 16, 17, uh, even verse 15 is about. And, and so I guess uh, just a, a loose translation or paraphrase would be, um, I never stop praying that you would be, understa- be able to understand what it is I'm about to tell you about Christ. Um, and so again, uh, Paul goes to extreme depths to say, uh, I name each of you before the throne of God, praying that you would be able to understand these things about Christ. And so these are the essential things of Christ that we desperately need to, um, to know, to grasp hold of, um, to, to rest in and find comfort in. This is uh, the source of our strength, our joy, our salvation. And so uh, I, I pray the same prayer for us tonight, even as we're uh, over uh, Facebook Live and and not be able to sit around a table with one another. Again, I encourage you, if you have questions or thoughts, to write them in the comments so that I can know that you're there and try to address those. Um, but but my prayer for you would be, God, give us ears to hear, uh, minds that are open to understand uh, the things of God that, that Paul is about to lay out for us uh, because apart from um, God revealing these things to us, uh, remember that when, when Christ asked the disciples, who do you say I am and who do man say I am? Uh, and Peter gives them this great reply where Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is kind of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying flesh and blood can't reveal to you the knowledge of who Christ is and all there is to know about Christ this is something that the spirit of God has to reveal and bring understanding to us about and so I know that's a lot of explanation and that's kind of the long way around uh, to get to where we are Uh, but I think it's so important to notice the emphasis that Paul puts on praying for uh, these brothers and sisters in Ephesus and Understanding how important it is that we truly understand the nature of Christ. Uh, understand this, Christ is Savior. Christ is Messiah. He's King. And if our thoughts and beliefs are wrong about Christ, then um, then if they get too far off, we can't be saved by Christ that is not the Christ of the Bible. And so it's very important for us that we understand uh, the nature of Christ uh, and so let's just dig in. Let's see what, what Paul says. There are going to be a, a couple of times where I have to stop and and give you some ex, uh, explanation to some things, uh, not just um, wrap it up, not just summarize it, but to go a little deeper. And so I encourage you maybe have a pen in your hand that there might be something you want to jot down as we begin to dig into this portion of, of this beautiful passage that's going to talk about uh, the glorious attributes of both God the Father Uh, and Christ. All right, verse 18. um, Let's begin to dig in. Uh, Paul continues saying, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Um, I've just, uh, 17, I don't want to skip that. Uh, 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Father of glory, that he may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, and so um, let's, just stop. let's just look at, at God for a second in verse 17 and what's actually being said there. Paul uses a very common phrase uh, that is found um, throughout Hebraic e- expression. So in, in the first century, the Hebrews, um, the Jewish people would have used this title for God. Um, um, not every day, but it was a common title that they would use this, this notion of glorious father. And so when we think about the glorious father, it it typically points both to God as the essential being as well as um, that which proceeds from God. And so God is a glorious father in the sense that in and of himself, he is glorious. And and so when we think about God the father, we must uh, acknowledge the glory of God. So there's nothing that God needs to do or nothing that God needs to add. Um, to be more glorious. Um, he, is, he, he is a self-revealed image of glory. And, and so we serve a glorious God, but this title also refers to that which proceeds from God. And, and so God being the God of glory uh, is not only glorious, uh, not to literally look upon, but in who God is, he's glorious. But also And that which proceeds from God, so the things that come out of God, that which comes from God, is glorious as well as God himself is glorious. And so Paul's really praying here. We see it continue in verse 17. He's really praying that the Holy Spirit of God, uh, that he might endow those believers, that that he might open their eyes, he might open their hearts, that he might uh, completely engage them so that they could truly see how glorious God is and truly see the glories of God. And and God Himself has made provision for us that this might be available. And so um, as we think about this Hebraic expression, uh, it, it's very close to uh, Romans six four uh, as well as uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, where Paul is observing both the glory of God and the power of God. And so when we, when we see this phrase in verse 17, uh, the father of glory, uh, or in other translations, it'll say uh, glorious father, um, that what is encapsulated in that, what what that really means and what that really contains is the glory of God, uh, as well as the power of God. And so, glorious Father is a term, a title used to God that both talks about the glory and the power of God and the glory and power that proceeds from God. And, and so, um, doxa, which we get words like doxology and other words like that, that, that is the, the term glory here. So, glorious Father. It's why we sometimes talk about the doxology. It's it's this understanding of who god is it's what we believe about god and so paul's taking the word doxa uh, which means glory he's also taking the word uh dynamis, which of course um several centuries later we end up getting our word dynamite from so it's not not a, a one-to-one so when we see dynamus, it's it's not the exact same word as dynamite so it's it's not that word but it is the word we get dynamite from and it is the greek word for power and so glorious father kind of combines together these two terms uh, of this dynamis, this this power of God with the doxa, the, the glory of God. And, and Paul is saying, boy, I pray that you might be endowed with the very spirit of God so that you might be able to clearly see uh, both the glory and the power of God. And when you see both the glory and the power of God, then you begin to understand this title or what Paul's referring to when he calls uh, our God the Glorious Father. And so I know you don't see that in, your, in just our text. And when we're reading just kind of the English translation, uh, we see Glorious Father and we kind of read on through. Uh, in this particular case, it's, it's one of the reasons why, listen, I hate, uh, I hate Greek. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, It's a beautiful language. I can't speak Greek. Uh, I can read Greek. I can understand Greek. Uh, But, um, you know, I couldn't go to Greece today and and speak, uh, you know, modern day Greek. Uh, I can read Koine Greek. And in this particular example, uh, it's one of the important uh, times when we have to not, not to try to uh, show that we're smart or to show that we know some Greek, um, I really to care less about that, uh, but to show that we can understand uh, what it is that the passage is saying. And to fully understand this title for God, Glorious Father, uh, then you have to understand kind of the, uh, the Greek makeup of the word, which again is closely re- related to the Greek words doxa, glory, uh, dynamis, power, And so this glorious, powerful God is who we serve. Uh, And not only that he in himself is glorious and powerful, but that everything that emanates from God is glorious and powerful. So that's really a lot to be contained in one title, Glorious Father. Uh, Let me just, uh, I'll be honest with you, like, you know, this is not something I just know firsthand. I mean, I've been studying this passage to be able to come and, and talk to you about it. And so, uh, in my studies, of course, I brush up on some of these terms. So uh, sometimes we can feel like, wow, and how can we really read and understand Scripture on our own if we have to know all of that tied up into one title? And I'm not suggesting um, that you can't understand Scripture. You can, you can clearly understand the overall emphasis of what Paul is teaching here, uh, whether you've had Greek or not, right? Whether you you know anything about the Greek language. Uh, In fact, Paul is praying, saying, uh, you can't, even if you knew Greek, you can't understand the nature of God, uh, right? You need the very Holy Spirit of God to endow you with understanding. And so in these first two, three verses of this passage, Paul is saying, I'm praying for you that you can understand uh, the glorious Father. You can understand the glory and power of God, His Son, Jesus Christ. That You can understand who Christ is uh, because the Holy Spirit gives you the ability uh, to learn, to hear, and to understand. All right? Uh, then he goes into uh, uh, verse 18, and uh, just kind of continuing, uh, that you would have eyes, or having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That is this where we're talking about the Holy Spirit giving us understanding, the Holy Spirit making the word clear to us, uh, the Holy Spirit taking God's word from just understanding it to practically how to put it into practice. Uh, So I think all of these are part of um, what's called epinosis. Uh, Epinosis, again, gnosis means the knowledge of something. Epa means the full knowledge of it. So we really want to have a full knowledge of God and a full knowledge of Christ, then what we have to, to come to an understanding of is this. We need the Holy Spirit of God to empower us, to enlighten us, to, to have this epinosis, to, to have this full knowledge of who God is. Uh, so verse 18, that, that uh, hearts enlightened that you may know, uh, that is the hope that, which he has called you, that's an important term, called you, that we'll look at. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And so... Uh, Paul here employs some uh, some unusual, really, uh, not something we're used to seeing in Paul's writing, some of the phrases and the figurative expressions that Paul uses in this particular um, uh, passage here. Um, I know uh, three times he calls attention to someone's calling in this passage. Um, but a lot of the, the blessed hope he'll talk about um, and, and said there's some unusual ways that Paul typically doesn't do in his writings. However, it, it's clearly Paul writing this. This is clearly Pauline text. Uh, but there are some things. He, he talks about the heart. Um, Say so basically that the heart, you know, we understand the heart, when Scripture talks about the heart, uh, that it's really talking about the seed of thought and of the moral judgment as well as uh, filling uh, you know this deep uh, interior and in, enlightenment provided by the by the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit gives us understanding um, to the believer. Um, this is kind of what Paul, when he's talking about the heart, uh, this deep inward understanding uh, comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, there's three things selected for sure in verse 18 uh, that I want to kind of share with you. So I'm going to read it one more time, and then I'll kind of want to break down just this one verse. Um, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so we see kind of these, uh, Paul's not literally talking about the eyes of your physical heart, but that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. This is what I mean by this is a little unusual figurative language um, for the Apostle Paul, but there's many parallels in the book of Colossians uh, to the book of Ephesians. So having the eyes of the hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This, so we're talking about this blessed hope, this calling that we have in Christ. And that we would have uh, the eyes of our hearts might understand this clear calling in our life. Um, and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance um, in the saints. And so just kind of let's walk through that uh, a little slowly. Uh, First, uh, again, uh, Paul brings our attention to this calling in our life. And I I would just say um, now calling is one of Paul's favorite words Um, throughout the letters that he writes. uh, He talks about. The called a lot Um, this calling in our life to Christ this uh, this calling of the blessed hope that we have the the glorious riches we have as the Saints of the Lord Jesus Christ and there's kind of a hope like in one regard it's this call that's already taken place this effectual call uh, where we've been called to a relationship with Christ um, like uh second Timothy one nine is a good example if you if you have a pen want to take note of that, uh, so in a sense, when we talk about a calling uh, and when we as believers are going to scripture there's a sense where um, we have already been called, and so it 's something that has happened to us, um, but the way Paul uses it is also it represents this ongoing call in our life this this blessed hope that we have this this Uh, hope that we've been called to uh, the hope in which we have been called it's not just something a kind of a one and done where this was a past tense thing where God called us Uh, he did call us but there's this kind of second um, element to it of this continuation of this calling in our life I, I think first Thessalonians probably is the place to go First uh, Thessalonians two twelve and First Thessalonians five twenty four and I just uh, unfortunately don't you to understand I, I can't turn to every one of these passages uh, but I want to try to give you these references so you might can can turn to those and and um, when you have um, some time just to to go a little deeper um, and we see this kind of looking to the future this future calling of what it is God's called us to. So we've been called by Christ, past tense, and now this calling is on our life, which is present and future tense uh, of what God is calling us to do. Kind of secondarily here in in verse 18, uh, Paul wants his readers to appreciate the the inherent wealth that we have in God. So I, I don't I want to make sure you hear this. So there's this, it talks about this uh, inheritance in the saints, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what I want to make sure you understand is that that what Paul's pointing out here is the riches of the glory of God. So that God himself, just his nature, just his attributes, his character, who he is, that we are rich in God, that we have this... um, this inheritance that's rich, not in a bunch of things, but in God himself. It's kind of like the Old Testament was, um, was promised an inheritance on earth. So when, when God is talking to the children of Israel, he's kind of promising them this land that's flowing with milk and honey, uh, that he's going to bless them. Uh, you, know, you go through the covenants that someone from David's line will sit on the throne. All of these are kind of um, earthly type inheritances, uh, but in in verse eighteen, what Paul's talking about here—the riches that we have, this this glorious inheritance we have in Christ—is is not an earthly thing. It, it is uh, the inheritance we have awaiting us in heaven, or the inheritance we have awaiting us in God and who God is, and in an everlasting. Rest that we find, this this everlasting glory that we've been assured of. It's God's faithfulness that He will vindicate those who trust in Him, and so this is the rich inheritance we have in Christ. Uh, is that we serve a God who will never leave us, forsake us, abandon us? Who is more than we'll ever need. Um, who is closer than a brother, who uh, the, the, the rewards and the promises he's given us are eternal. And so with the Old Testament, we kind of see God is pointing toward this inheritance for Israel. So Israel's is a picture of what God is going to do in Christ for the world or the world of those who uh, know him, who have been called according to his purpose even before the foundations of the world. We read several weeks ago in Ephesians 1-4. Uh, and so the the riches we have as christians are found in the person of god in the person of christ in the 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 presence of the holy spirit this is what makes us rich it's not an accumulation of earthly things it is just god by himself without anything added is the greatest treasure we could ever have exponentially greater than anything we could ever imagine or think of. And so when we think of this glorious father, this glorious God that we have, and then Paul comes back and says that we have this glorious inheritance uh, as the saints in God, then understand that our treasure is God. Our our rich inheritance is eternity, eternal peace with Christ. Um, and, and so uh, I, I hope that's clear. Like, I, I hope that we don't get Uh, sidetracked by by some of these statements that are eternal statements. Um, So when he says, uh, again, in verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that we not get caught up in this uh, glorious inheritance uh, as though it is something physically to be gained, but that this uh, this, uh, eternal inheritance, this glorious inheritance is God himself. The fact is, um, now we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us and the presence of of God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is um, a glorious inheritance that the saints have. Verse 19, again, listen, uh, if you have a comment or a question, write it, type it there in the comments, and I'll see it. You'll see me glance down not only at my notes, not only at the Scripture, but also um, as I'm trying to keep track of those uh, comments that you may have. And so we'd love to, to hear your comments, any questions you have. Uh, so that we might can, uh, can get back to this. Uh, so up to this point, let me just summarize very quickly, kind of in a one-sentence kind of summary uh, from verse 15 all the way through verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, I pray for you constantly by naming your name before the throne of God that the Holy Spirit would endow you so that you can understand the things of God. All right, so that's kind of a a one sentence whether it's uh a, a run-on sentence or not. That's a, that's a one sentence that kind of explains what's been taking place uh in these first 3 verses or so. Uh verse 19, uh we just continued to dig into some um uh just some deep ground, some fertile ground about who God is and who Christ is. And 19 says uh, continuing so Paul's praying that we might know these things and continue in nineteen that we might know um, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, and so just these couple of lines that, that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power uh, so we're, so we might know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God and the power toward us according to the working of his great might. So uh, let's take a minute, recognize. So here's what uh, kind of one item that Paul is doing here, one element is he wants the reader of, of the book of the letter to the Ephesians uh, to recognize the enormous power of God. And I think sometimes um, our, our circumstances may seem to overwhelm us so much that they kind of... Um, put blinders on us to the enormous power of the God that we serve, the God that we rely on. Uh, and here Paul presents it as uh, an incomparable greatness, that this in, incomparably great power that we have. Uh, I, I just share with you that only Paul, in the entire New Testament, only the Apostle Paul uh, uses this term or employs this term of a hyperbalon, which is this kind of, this incomparably great power. Uh, This is the, Paul uses it, Paul likes it, Uh, this is one of the instances he does, but none of the other New Testament writers uh, employ this word. Uh, So this is something that's very much Pauline, and when I say that I just mean uh, this is something we see in the letters that That Paul writes and you you will notice as you read many of the epistles where Paul's writing to the churches or the pastoral epistles where he's writing to pastors or even uh, Philemon that uh, uh, we'll see this phrase sometimes used this incomparably great in reference to God uh, or the things of God Uh, but it literally it just suggests uh, the conception um, that is attached to it. is kind of thrown into another sphere altogether that the power of god is something that uh is just uh in a league of its own that that's really what paul's saying is uh well if we could think about the most powerful thing that we could imagine um and then um you know exponentially multiply that thing Um, that it would still be greater above and beyond that. And so this this term, hyperbolon, where Paul's just talking about the incomparable greatness of the power of the God we serve. And, um, boy, I wish we could just meditate on that thought for a while. Um, And uh, just the greatness and the power of God. I mean, the one who's called us out and saved us and brought us into relationship with him, uh, how great his power is, and how incomparable it is. It's incomparably great, Paul says. And, and so something that we should um, should meditate on, this uh, unimaginable potency that, that God has uh, directed toward all who believe. And, and so the intended destination... Of God's incomparably great power is us and so in essence what Paul is saying is boy I pray that you understand these things about God that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you and I want you to know that you are the source uh, the intended source of the power of an incomparably great God and so God's power is meant to rest upon us Uh, we are the intended source of the power of God In fact, one example of that, or the example of that, is the Holy Spirit of God living within us. And that's what Paul is going to kind of begin driving at, is this incomparably great power... In essence, is the Holy Spirit of God in the life of the believer empowering us to do that which we could never do on our own, to do things greater within us than we could ever imagine or think? Jesus said, I've got to go so someone greater can come. He's talking about the incomparably great power of the Holy Spirit of God within the life of the believer that the church would now see things that were even greater than what they saw when Christ walked the earth. Uh, so we may ask the question, why aren't we seeing uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit of God within the church of Jesus Christ? Why aren't we seeing that power engaged and at work in the world around us? And that's, a, that's a fair, good, uh, perfect question that we should all stop and ask, is why do we not see evidence of this incomparably great power of God? And maybe we, maybe we do. Um, we do see glimpses of it. We, we see uh, people being healed instantaneously from um, lethal diseases and uh, from wheelchairs. Uh, but we don't see these things every day. Like when you read the New Testament, the expectation kind of seemed to be that the incomparably great power of God upon the saints were to be a to be used to carry out the will of God so that we were to be like an extension of Christ in the world today, that Christ goes back to the Father. Now the church, armed with the Holy Spirit of God, is taking the work of God and the kingdom of God um, to the world around us. And so not in our own power, not in our own strength, but in the incomparably great power uh, of God. And so, uh, so in 19, when it says this immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, just notice this, the power of God, this hyperbolon, this, uh, we can't even explain it, the, the greatest power we could conceive, it's above that, and it's been directed to us, the believers. And so the power of God is to rest upon and in the believers of God. And so how do we walk victoriously? How do we walk as those who have overcome this world? Not in our own power, but in the immeasurable great power uh, of the God that we serve. Let's get to verse 20. Uh, I can continue to talk, and boy, uh, I would really like to break down some of the, uh, the words like, uh, again, dynamus for power. Uh, Paul uses energia, which is uh, the word for uh, strength or, or operation, uh, kratos, uh, talking about the very strength and power of God, um, and so some of these words and what they mean and, and what Paul said. Uh, so, verse twenty. Now, let, let's let's dig back. So, this uh, verse nineteen. All right, let me let me summarize one sentence again. Uh, so, from verse fifteen all the way through verse nineteen, this is all that Paul said. I pray for you constantly. I go before the throne of God. I name you all by name. My prayer is that you can understand um, the power of God in your life. And the only way you can understand this is if the Holy Spirit brings understanding. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would endow the believers that they might fully understand who God is. That's what Paul's really said. So now verse 20, we pick up. And, and it says not only the, the, immeasurable, the immeasurable power uh, of God, the great might of God, uh, but Paul continues this thought of the great power of God in verse 20 when he says this great power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And, and so you want to know the power of God this immeasurable, immeasurably great power that God has that's intended for us believers, um, what that power is or where we've seen that power at work, it is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the very power that resides within us uh, in the, the person of the Holy Spirit of God all right, is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the power that gives life over death. And so we have access to the very power that raised Jesus Christ from his grave. So Paul is praying that we can understand this, that we might understand that this, this power is the power that raised Christ, not only raised him from the dead, but seated him at the right hand of the Father. So this is where Christ is now. Now I want to make sure you understand what Paul's saying in the sense of, I don't want us to misunderstand something. Uh, Remember that this notion of Jesus Christ being the right hand of the Father, 20, Paul has really been kind of racking up and just uh, heaping one after another term uh, about the power of God. Um, I mean, the very vocabulary of Paul is just every, every single verse seems to be just Synonym after synonym about the power of God and the glory of God and the greatness of God. And here what Paul does in verse 20, it shows where it's most uh, impressively exerted. Where this power of God really is exerted. And so just uh, again, let me, let's read 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Um, and we see all of this vocabulary uh, that the Apostle Paul has been writing about the power of God ultimately in, right, come to fruition in the resurrection of Christ. And so all this stuff about who Christ is, all this stuff about the power of God and the glory of God, the doxa, the uh, the dynamis of, of God, we see perfectly directed at the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead and then his subsequent um, exaltation the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God and and Paul has absolutely no hesitation in describing this power of God that he wants us to be able to understand as the same power of God that raised Jesus Christ uh, from the dead by the father so notice that Paul is saying that the father raised Jesus Christ from the dead through the power of of His Holy Spirit, and yet Jesus was absolutely one hundred percent correct in John ten, where where Jesus says, "No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, and I can take it up again," uh, because uh, Christ and the Father are one, as well as the Spirit. Then Christ is absolutely correct that uh, he he can lay His life down and take it back again. Uh, Paul is correct in saying it is the Father who, by the very glorious, immeasurable great power of God he raised him from the dead and we also know that it's the spirit of God at work uh, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that now lives within us and um, and so I just I pray that uh, we would kind of see the focus of that and one of the other things I I pray that we would not get kind of sidetracked is uh, the notion of the listen um, does God have a right side uh, I mean, we kind of have this image of Jesus where God's like on a throne and maybe he's a little bigger than than Jesus. And then Jesus sitting at his right side. Um, is that what is that what Paul is saying? Is that what Stephen describes as he's being martyred? And, and I would just say that that the right hand of the father is a position of sovereignty and a position of power. Uh, and it, it is less a position of, uh, of place and more a position of power. And so Christ has been exalted. He's been lifted up. He's been placed above. And, and so I don't want us to get caught up because this, this spatial imagery allows us to kind of comprehend the way things are working. And yet we know that God is not bound to a, to a throne. Right, that God is bigger than the universe, and so he, he's not bound to sit on a throne, even though he's on the throne, which means he is, uh, um, again, sovereign, superior, preeminent, uh, and all these things. But it's the spatial imagery that's used is not to paint a picture of us as, as though uh, uh, God is sitting on a throne, just sitting there, and Christ sitting beside him, but the spatial imagery allows us to see what Paul is effectively saying is, of course, that, uh, that God is immeasurably great in his power and that Christ has been exalted by the Father to the position of authority, his right side. Um, and so I don't want us to miss, uh, miss that uh, portion. Uh, and, and Paul will continue to use kind of dimensional expressions. For instance, uh, as we move to verse uh, 21, Uh, Paul writes that he's talking about Christ who's been exalted to the heavenly places. Uh, And then 21, it continues the description of where Christ has been exalted to. And it says, He's been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And, uh, and so this far above, again, it, again it's, it's kind of like being at the right hand of the Father. It's not a spatial uh, expression, but it simply indicates the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over all of creation. And, and so as, Hebrew, as Hebrews begins, Paul is saying here that Christ is superior to the angels. That Christ is superior to creation. Christ is superior to us. And so um, this dimensional expression where he has been seated far above uh, is less about height and more about the superiority of God, Peter himself. And so we see some of the uh, um, dimensional um, use here. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name, not only in this age, but also... And the one to come, uh, so Paul kind of uh, proceeds, kind of to give us a, a comprehensive plan that that every title that can ever be given, given, not only the titles that have been in the past, but the titles that are to come. Uh, so it, Paul's talking about the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the age past, in the present age, in the age to come, and um, and so. Um, That includes the names known by uh, men living on the earth today, men that used to live, men that will live. Christ is above everyone and everything. He is superior to all. Uh, Again, kind of a a snapshot of the book of Hebrews about the superiority uh, of Christ. uh, But also about this. He's been given a name that's above every name. Um, and it just kind of contrasts maybe uh, the present age with the the messianic age um, that that especially the early church fathers and even uh, the disciples uh, recognized for those in Christ that that the the last times uh, with the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ we were entering into. Um, Maybe not the end times is the right word to use, but in the last times, uh, where the next thing that we're expecting, of course, is, um, is for Christ to return for his bride. And, and so no matter where our views are, and that's kind of what Paul's stating, giving us this messianic terms where, where Christ is superior, where Christ is the ruler, uh, a glimpse into a completion of that which has partially begun now, Uh, And we'll find its completion at the the second return uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And so in 22, just uh, Paul's kind of underlining the exaltation of Christ a little further. uh, He uses this verb here. um, The verb is uh, hypotasso. Uh, And it refers not only to the supremacy of Christ, so so Christ is supreme, uh, but also that all things else must subject themselves to Christ. And and so I want to make sure there's kind of a double meaning here, or at least two parts to what it means um, for Christ to be given over to be above all things, uh, as verse twenty-two says, that all things have been put under His feet, and uh, and and give Him as head over all things. Um, this uh, again, this verb hypotasso, uh, which literally means first. Christ is superior to all things, and then secondly, that all things must subject themselves to Christ. And so, there's really two parts of what verse 22 uh, is bringing out, what Paul is explaining. And and so, uh, Christ is supreme to all things, and all things are subjected to him. All things come under his rule. And so, not just that he's greater than all things, he is. He is supreme but he is sovereign. And then the second aspect of that, and all of us have been called into subjection to Christ. And so the, this is what the verb that Paul's using here is kind of a picture of Christ exalted and us uh, really being uh, the doulos, the servants of uh, our curious, our Lord Jesus. And, and so it's a picture not only of his lordship, It's a picture of us as servants to Him, uh, subserving ourselves and uh, and submitting ourselves and subjecting ourselves to His rule. Uh, So, verse twenty-three kind of finishes out uh, this uh, this uh, first chapter in this particular passage, uh, and and just says this, still continuing to talk about Christ um, and the um, exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And so it says he's been placed his head over all things to the church. And then verse 23, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so with that being said, just kind of conclude with with verse 23 and give just kind of a a short description of this. Uh, But the church, uh, which we understand is the body of Christ. Is further described in verse twenty three as the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. So we are the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way, and so we're the fullness of Him who fills everything. And uh, and so the precise uh, significance maybe of this. This is kind of a an uh, enigmatic type uh, wording. Um, and it's kind of been discussed uh, by theologians much wiser than I am, with much more knowledge than, than I have. And many commentators vary kind of on their interpretations. Um, so what are we really talking about here? We're talking about this, uh, uh, this term, uh, pleroma. And uh, pleroma can, can mean several things. And, and what do I mean by pleroma, it is that we are the fullness of him who fills everything. So what does that really mean? We are the fullness of the one who fills everything. Um, and the term for that is pleroma. Uh, and there are a couple of uh, possible options. One is, um, it, it just means that we are, or the church is, that, that which is filled with Christ. And and so if the church is that which is filled with Christ, then it meets this description and this wording uh, quite good, quite well, and it would be fine. And so uh, when we say the fullness of him who fills everything, we could say that the church is that which is filled with Christ. Uh, That's a possible answer of uh, pleroma. A second is that which is filled by Christ. And, And so one is that the church is filled with Christ, The other is the church is filled by Christ. And so Christ is filling the church. Uh, I'm not talking about the number of people who are sitting in your seats, right? We're talking about the fullness of things in Christ. And when the church, it's described as the fullness of that which uh, fills everything, then are we talking about simply that the church is that which Christ um, fills? That which is filled with Christ, that which is filled by Christ. Uh, another option could be that which is that which fills up Christ. Uh, I don't know. I have a, maybe a little trouble with the, this this third possibility that uh, for us to be the fullness of Him who fills everything, uh, that the church is that which fills up Christ. Uh, where pleroma could also be a complement of these things. Um, is Paul saying that Christ in some sense um, made more, is made more complete by the church? Um, I don't think that's possible because is there any sense where Christ is incomplete? And so I, I don't think that, that what Paul's writing here, even though it's very enigmatic and, and very difficult to kind of parse the words out perfectly, um, I don't believe he's saying that Christ... Is Christ needs to be filled by the church? That we, the church, fill Christ, um, or that we make Him wholly complete? I just I think Christ is already wholly complete. Um, could it mean uh, that the church is uh, simply the fullness of God? Uh, And I I think that based on the possibilities we have that we have to settle maybe between uh, the first two options, I think, or or even a combination where the church is that which is filled with Christ and the church is filled by Christ, uh, where Christ is the source. The power that is directed to the church, to the believers, is directed to us by the Father. It is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the same power uh, on Resurrection Sunday uh, that raises Jesus from the dead that, that believers now have. And so Paul is praying that we can understand this, that we can really understand what it means to be in Christ and to be filled by Christ and to be filled with Christ. And that when we are filled by Christ and filled with Christ, then we, uh, we experience an immeasurably great power uh, and the gloriousness uh, of the God that we serve. And so, uh, um, yeah, I, I hope that kind of brings some, some sense to what Paul's saying. And so we've talked uh, kind of, I don't want you to think I've talked in circles Uh, This is this is there's some deep things and deep aspects in Ephesians here in chapter one that we need to try to address. Uh, They're not to cause us to to stumble in any way to bring us to a greater awareness of just how uh, sovereign, uh, how powerful, how supreme. Uh, that our God and Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the Spirit that indwells and endows the, the believer, uh, just how powerful and beautiful and gracious and glorious they are. And, and what Paul's essentially saying, if you left with this, if, if you just walked away with, with this takeaway, that Paul says we ought to pray by name for believers, that they might come to an understanding, they might come to knowledge, uh, this uh, epinosis, this fullness of knowledge uh, in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit of the power of our God and the gloriousness, not only the power, but the glory of our God and how great that is And ultimately how we should ponder those things, meditate on those things, build our foundation on those things of our walk in Christ. And if we do so, then we've really built for ourselves uh, a very strong foundation. Like if there's some things out there that that you would like uh, us to touch on, us to uh, look at, to talk about, um, then um, if you'll submit those things, man, I, I would even dedicate an entire night to just uh, kind of discussing some of the questions you have, or or, or um, concerns you have, or, or subjects that, that you would like to hear more about, and, and so we just uh, encourage you to do that. Um, thank you so much for those who, who were able to tune into the live stream, and, and as well as those who will come after us and uh, and watch the Bible study uh, as it's available to them. Uh, and so I just uh, want to pray for you guys tonight. Uh, I will. Um, I'm doing everything I can at technology wise if I can pull it off uh, to, to come back Wednesday night and to kind of pick up the Ephesians study uh, on, on both Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. If, if we can do that, I uh, would give you an opportunity to watch uh, two Bible studies throughout the week. Um, and it would allow us to, to kind of get through the book of Ephesians um, in, in short order as we're praying that, uh, that things will begin to open up and that, that uh, we'll begin to see numbers go, go way down uh, on this coronavirus uh, until we can begin to meet face to face and discuss things. And until that time comes, we want to provide everything we can um, for all of you Facebook family uh, to be able to, to hear God's word, to, uh, to, to speak. Uh, to teach, to discuss, and so thank you so much for your time and your willingness to take uh, an hour out of your your afternoon to uh, to spend with us. So let's pray, and then I'm going to close us out. And again, uh, any comments you would like to, you can um, you can send direct message to me if you would like, and uh, and I'd love to have a talk with you about those things. Uh, most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your Word, and Lord, I just thank you that even with all the obstacles. Uh, the coronavirus, uh, our inability to gather together, um, Lord, my technology insufficiencies. Uh, Lord, I pray that your word has been uh, proclaimed faithfully tonight, uh, that we've studied your word in a way that brings glory and honor to your name and both preserves your word as the ultimate truth, uh, and that we leave your word both with a greater love for you, dear God, and a greater love for our neighbors. Uh, Lord, if that's the case, then we will leave this Bible study uh, more like the God that we serve. Uh, Lord, help us to be better imitators of you in a world that's full of hurting right now, in a world that's full of disease and sickness. And uh, Lord, this isn't new to us. We live in a sinful, fallen world where troubles come. Help us to remember you've overcome this world. And therefore, in you, we've overcome this world as well. Be with us, uh, Lord, as we go throughout our week. Uh, We pray you continue to lead and guide the officials of our nation and our state level, local levels. As uh, they try to make plans to reopen things. uh, Lord, at the same time, balancing that with the safety of our people. And so give them wisdom when and how to do these things. And, Lord, give us wisdom of, uh, Lord, as Paul prayed, help us to know you in your fullness, to understand the immeasurably great and incomprehensible graciousness and love and power of the God that we serve. And we ask all these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Thanks again. Hope to see you guys soon.